Well, good morning. Kind of, kind of pumped up, kind of excited. I hope you are. Here he is. <laughs> Aaron is. Aaron, Aaron got the Apostles' Creed done in under eight minutes. And he wants the world to know about it. So hopefully I can get this sermon done in two hours. So uh, turn over to Acts chapter 16, if you will, please. Acts chapter 16, we've been cruising through the book of Acts. <laughs> yes, I'm a slow driver. Last week we, we looked at verses 4 to 10 of Acts chapter 16. We basically wrapped up the intermissionary period between Paul's first and second missionary journeys. You heard me say last week there was a bunch of things that took place in between them. And we pretty much wrapped up that section of scripture. We also read about how Paul tried to evangelize Asia and then Bithynia, but wasn't able to proceed in these places because he had been blocked by the Holy Spirit. After back-to-back -back stoppages, Paul set his sights on Macedonia, southeast Europe. He then traveled to a port city in Mysia called Traus to charter a boat. And while in Trous, he experienced a vision in the middle of the night. He was woke up. The vision confirmed that he was supposed to proceed with his plan to enter and evangelize Macedonia. Paul assembled his team, Silas, Timothy, and newly added Luke, to discuss the vision. And they all agreed that the vision was a confirmation from the Holy Spirit to move forward with their plan. This is where we left off. And uh, this morning we will begin to look at Paul's second missionary journey. And I uh, have a few, or at least probably five, cool stats about it. I'm a, a stat guy. I like stats. Anyone else like stats? All right, so this is going to go nowhere. <laughs> five people are going to be like, dude, he preached that morning. Seventy others are going, he didn't do anything. I like stats, and here's just some great statistical facts about this uh, second journey. Number one, Paul's second journey is recorded in chapter 16, verse 11, to chapter 18, verse 22. A couple of full chapters there recorded these things. Some actually uh, like to say that uh, the second journey began back in Acts 15, 35, uh, they like to include the separation with Barnabas, the acquisition of Silas and Timothy, and, and the visits to the previously planted churches as part of the second journey. I really don't have much of a problem with that, but some go all the way back to 1535. Some also say that the second journey began at chapter 16, verse 6, because we read there that Paul attempted to evangelize Asia. Both opinions could be true, both positions could be right, but I have a little different view on it, as always. The key factor for me in determining the starting point for the second journey is the confirmation of the Holy Spirit. It would be the confirmation of the Holy Spirit. Back in Acts 13, 2-4, we read that the Holy Spirit confirmed Paul and Barnabas before they departed on their first journey from Syrian Antioch. The Holy Spirit used the church to confirm them. A similar thing happened before Paul and his team departed from Traus, what we read last week. This time, the Holy Spirit used a vision to confirm Paul and his team. And then I began to think about the third trip they took later on. Did the Holy Spirit somehow confirm Paul before he engaged in that mission or at some point during the beginning of it? And I began to kind of read through, you know, Acts, and it's a good thing to do that if you're teaching through a book line by line. It's good to read before, it's good to read long after to find out you'll catch yourself making a lot of mistakes. And I began to read, and I came to Acts 19, verses 1 to 10. And it is there that we read about how Paul departed from Corinth, which was the last city he was at during his second journey. From Corinth, he traveled back to Asia where he entered Ephesus. He had tried to go there previously and got shut down by the Spirit. 
Ephesus was the first city he evangelized during his third missionary journey. First city he went into and began to preach the gospel. Question is, did the Holy Spirit confirm Paul at this point? Yes. Yes, the Holy Spirit did. When Paul first entered Ephesus, he discovered some disciples who had received part of the gospel, aspects of it. They heard that they were to repent of their sin in accordance with the teachings of John the Baptist, but they didn't know anything about Jesus or the Holy Spirit. Paul preached the full gospel to them, and they were immediately regenerated and baptized by the Holy Spirit, and they began to display signs and wonders. The Holy Spirit used this event right at the onset of his third mission to confirm Paul that he was on the right path at the right time and that he was to proceed. In all three instances, before each missionary journey began, the Holy Spirit confirmed Paul before he set forth. This makes the Holy Spirit the trigger person for Paul's first second, and third missionary journeys. And rightfully so, because the scriptures make it clear that the Holy Spirit is the trigger person for all true ministry. God is the one who grants a holy desire. God is the one who gives the zeal for ministry. He is the one that gives the plan, and then he sends the Holy Spirit to confirm and to empower his servants so that they might execute and complete his ministry objectives. This is what we have seen in Acts over and over. God's plan, confirmed and empowered by the Holy Spirit, executed and completed through his servants like Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. Amazing. That's my position, and I could be wrong. But it is absolutely imperative that we understand the Holy Spirit's work in ministry and life, that it begins with him. And in each case, we see that so clearly in the scriptures, if we take the time to really look. The second cool stat, the second missionary journey lasted about three years from 51 A.D. to 53 A.D. Interestingly, the first journey was also three years, and then the third journey was a little longer at five to six years. Third stat, the second missionary journey is divided into two parts. You have the first part, which took place in Macedonia, as recorded in Acts 16, 11 to 17, 50, 15, and then in Achaia, you ever seen that word in the scripture? A-C-H-A-I-A. -A. I always go acacia. There's no C there that would allow that kind of pronunciation. It's Achaia. Achaia is the second phase as recorded in Acts 17, 16 to 18, 22. So we have this mission trip, two phases, one in Macedonia, one in Achaia. Number four, Paul wrote 1st and 2nd Thessalonians during the second journey. Interesting thing. He wrote the majority of his other epistles during the third, nothing during the first. Fifth, Paul and his team, and this is quite marvelous, Paul and his team traveled about 2,700 miles, 1,290 by sea and 1,410 by, light, or by land, light, yeah, that too, they traveled that many miles during the second missionary journey, most of which were probably on foot. Isn't that amazing? Three years, 2,700 miles. I'm preaching the gospel, going from community to community. As I looked at these stats and researched them, I just felt more and more like a peon. Right? You know? What some men have accomplished under the power of the Holy Spirit and a a deep love and affection for Christ is just amazing and mind-boggling. Now, starting today, our focus will be on Paul's evangelistic efforts in the Macedonian cities of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. 
We will begin our exposition with verses 11 and 12. That's where we'll start. And we're pretty much going to camp out in Philippi. I'd like to pray one more time. Father, open our hearts and minds to the truth. It's amazing that we can simply follow a storyline, a historical narrative of, of a man and a group of other men just moving to and fro, preaching the gospel. And yet this scripture, it's a storyline. We're following the movements of these men. And yet it is so rich in doctrine, so rich in truth. Just travel. Pretty amazing. God, I pray that you would apply the doctrines that are found in our text today to our hearts. Help us to obey, to live out in all faithfulness to you. Guide us during this moment, Jesus, and I pray that you would receive all the praise and glory for that which is said. May people mar marvel at you, gaze upon you, and hear from you. You are their preacher. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, 11 and 12. Are you there? If you're there, say I'm there. All right. Here we go. It says, so setting sail from Traus, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. And the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, we remained in this city some days. Not a whole lot going on there, right? Doesn't seem like it. Wrong. From Traus in Mysia, they sailed directly to Samothrace, which is a small Greek island situated halfway between Traus and Macedonia in the northern part of the Aegean Sea. Samothrace is mountainous, very rugged, very treacherous in terms of its geography, which basically kept the ancient Greeks and later Romans from making it a major port city. It just didn't have the kind of geography that would allow that. Beautiful place. Kind of like a pine crest out in the middle of the ocean. It's mountainous and beautiful. It did, however, Samothrace did, however, feature a religious temple called the Sanctuary of the Great Gods. Interestingly, in 1863, a French archaeologist discovered on Samothrace a 2,000-year-old statue called Nike of Samothrace. In Greek mythology, Nike was thought to be the winged goddess of victory. The Greek word for victory is actually Nike. Interestingly, too, the shoe company, <laughs> I'm just telling you, you wonder where people get these ideas and these names and these kinds of things. This is exactly where Nike got it from, from this supposed Greek Goddess. And interestingly, the statue that was found or dug up, excavated, had one wing uh, missing. And the shape of the statue's wing looks exactly like the Nike swoosh. Isn't that silly? So every time you buy Nikes, you're worshiping this false god. <laughs> you guys are like, wait, those were Jordans. Those were $1,000. Let me get those back. Yeah, right? Well, never mind. Interesting fact. Now, this statue is, is currently being displayed at the Louvre in Paris. So you can actually go there and see it. And they found the other wing and, and reattached it. Interesting. Now, our text shows us that Paul and his team stayed the night on this island. They stayed the night. And on the following day, they sailed for Neapolis. Didn't stay long. Got out of there. They were headed somewhere else, if you will. And Neapolis was due west and served as the Aegean seaport for Philippi, which was about nine miles inland. Philippi was not a coastal city, but it used Neapolis 
uh, for all of its shipping and trade and these sorts of things. And so that was the Aegean seaport for Philippi. Philippi was just about nine miles in. Neapolis was inhabited by a familiar group of people, the Scythians. The Scythians lived in Neapolis from basically the 3rd century B.C. to the 4th century A.D. In Colossians 3.11, Paul said, and I'm paraphrasing, in Christ there is no Greek, no Jew, no circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free person. All are in Christ and all are one. And I've always wondered why he mentioned the Scythians in this text. Because they do not show up anywhere else in the Bible. And then I began to ponder. Maybe as Paul passed through Neapolis, he evangelized and preached the gospel. And maybe some Scythians were saved. And maybe this is the reason why he mentioned them. They were a bit of an obscure people. And it's interesting that he took the time to mention them. From Neapolis they traveled further west to Philippi, which was, as it says in the text, a leading city in the district of Macedonia. Luke shows that Paul was on the move. In a few short verses he illustrates to us how Paul went from Traus to Samothrace to Neapolis very quickly so that he could get to Philippi, which was the major city. One thing that I noticed is that Paul seems to have changed his strategy to a degree in terms of evangelism. During his first journey, he preached in most of the towns he passed through, regardless of their size. Here we see him pass through the smaller towns so he can get to the larger city. Paul had, I believe, grown in experience and wisdom. He had come to understand the value of evangelizing larger cities. Larger cities have many advantages over smaller cities and smaller towns. Some to mention would be that they have more places to preach at. Larger geography. They have more people to preach to. They are more ethnically diverse. Cities tend to be gathering points for people from all over the world, which means more people from all over the world can hear the gospel. They have obviously more houses and buildings to plant churches in. They are usually, in most cases, I'd say almost 100% of the time, they are the centers in their communities for training and development. Most of the big stuff happens in large Cities, lots of the development and these sorts of things, which can be totally advantageous to the gospel in terms of discipleship and being organized. They are also centers for commerce, which means that the tra major trade routes in the region pass through them. And those things can be used. They have more resources to put forth and to leverage for the gospel. They have higher technology, which can be utilized for spreading the gospel. They are the epicenters of cultural influence. Larger cities influence smaller cities, and smaller cities influence towns, and towns influence smaller towns, and smaller towns influence country folk, and country folk, in, you know, influence cows and cattle. And other. just kind of goes right down. I know Spencer's like, hey, I'm a cowboy. What are you trying to tell me? Preach the gospel at all times, Spencer. It's utterly crazy. <laughs> Nobody got that. Cows. But, yeah, it was just a stupid joke. <laughs> think of, think, yeah, amen. Get me back for what I said to you. Um, think of, but think of the larger city as being an epicenter where things happen and then trickle outward. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that, that, that good things happen. A lot of bad things happen at cities. But we should think of cities as places that can be an epicenter for gospel change that trickles out and goes beyond. They are also, and lastly, centers for philosophy, centers for spirituality, 
and religion. In most cities back in the day, they'd build a big ziggurat, which was a religious, like the first high-rise, first skyscrapers. They would build those right in the middle of the city. It was the religious kind of symbol. And being that they are centers for philosophy, spirituality, and religion, this can, at many times, help to make people more sensitive to the notion of God. Sometimes not. Sometimes so. The fact of the matter is, back in these days, most people in larger cities believed in a god or gods. And so often that creates maybe a fertile or more fertile ground for the gospel to be planted because people are already entertaining the notion of spiritual things and God. So those are just some reasons why larger cities can be have advantages over the smaller places. And I think Paul understood this. He shot right through these smaller places and went right to the big fish. Luke also tells us that Philippi was a Roman colony. Why did he add this detail? Look at verse 13 and then I'll begin to thread it together. It'll make more sense. It says, and on... The Sabbath day, we went outside. This is Luke narrating what happened. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. If you remember, it was customary for Paul to preach the gospel in Jewish synagogues whenever he entered a new city or town. But when he entered Philippi, he realized something very quickly. There were no synagogues. None. How do I know this? Verse 12. Philippi was a Roman colony. You have to remember that Rome had ownership over all of these territories. We don't need Luke to tell us this fact. Rome had dominance over all of these areas. The, the Roman Empire expanded through these regions and many other regions. So we don't have to have Luke tell us this. We already know that these areas are under Roman control. But in fact, he puts this little nugget in here. He says it was a Roman colony. In combination with verse 13, it says, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. Fact is, verse 12 and 13 make it lucidly clear that Philippi was predominantly Gentile and featured no synagogues. Another interesting fact is that the requirements for forming a synagogue in any community were that you had to have at least 10 Jewish men who were heads of households. The 10 men would come together and take their families and join together to form a synagogue. Tradition did not permit the formation of a new synagogue with less. You couldn't form a synagogue with nine, eight, seven, six families. Philippi didn't have synagogues because it had very little, if any, Jewish leading men who were heads of households. This is further illustrated in the text. Now, being that there were no synagogues in Philippi, Paul may have thought to himself, if there were faithful Jews or proselytes, God-fears in Philippi, where would I find them? He looks around, he doesn't find any synagogues, and he says to himself, if there's anyone similar to me, because he still desires to preach to the Jew first, where might I find some people? Where might I find some people who fear the God of Israel, who love the God of Israel to a degree? He thought to himself, the wilderness. The wilderness has always been a place of prayer, contemplation, and communion with God, with the Israelite people, and with others. John the Baptist was a riverside wilderness preacher who attracted large crowds and Jesus even spent time in the wilderness before he began his ministry. Paul took his team and went outside the city gates into the wilderness. He traveled to the nearby river to see if he could find a spot where people gathered to pray. When he approached the river, he found a group of women, as in almost every case, 
The men were watching the Super Bowl, I guess. He finds a group of women. Why did he find only women? Again, because there weren't any leading Jewish men in Philippi. Starting to see it? When Paul and his team found the women, they went and sat down with them. They assumed a teaching posture. Rabbis would sit with their students to teach them. Paul was a rabbi trained under the famous Gamaliel. And here we see him acting like a rabbi. The women would have picked up on this, thinking that they were about to be taught by a rabbi. They would have known what it meant and would have welcomed him. Please sit. Probably would have even referred to him as a rabbi. They would have been thrilled because there were no leading men in Philippi. And now they have sitting with them the great Apostle Paul, although they probably don't know who he is, but they have him sitting there. I would have had him sign my T-shirt. Paul then proceeded to do what a rabbi would do, but only the right kind of rabbi, and that is he what? He began to preach what? Not the Old Testament law alone or any of those sorts of things. He began to proclaim and preach the gospel. And I love what MacArthur wrote right here. He said, it is significant that the first people Paul preached to in Europe, Macedonia, were women. Women were the first ones to hear the gospel in this place. He is often caricatured as a male chauvinist by those who reject his teaching on the role of women. I've heard these things. But he was not prejudiced as his eagerness to speak with this group shows. Paul's attitude was in sharp contrast to that of his fellow Pharisees. Even though he was the Pharisee of Pharisees, the gospel had changed him. The Pharisees would never stoop down to teach a woman. And they regularly thanked God in their prayers that they were not like Gentile slaves or what? Women. Quite a contrast with the Apostle Paul. Let's look at 14a. As he was proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, our hope, it says this in 14a, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Luke points us to a woman who listened to Paul's preaching. He included four details about her right there in the verse. A, she was known as Lydia. Lydia may not have been her real name, but a reference to where she was from, similar to Mary Magdalene. Mary was from uh, Magdala. People from Magdala were called Magdalenes. B, she was from Thyatira. Thyatira was a Roman province in the district of Lydia. You see it? Ephesus, Miletus, Sardis, Troy, and Smyrna were also uh, cities in the district of Lydia. Kind of get a little picture of the geography. Thyatira was known for its purple dye production. The dye was extracted from a certain type of shellfish or from the roots of the madder plant. C. She was a seller of purple goods. Lydia was a merchant who sold purple goods. This was actually a booming business in Thyatira. Because there was an abundance of purple dye. That was her profession. D, she was a worshiper of God, Luke says. Lydia was not a Jew because Luke would have identified her as one, similar to how he identified Timothy's mom, Eunice, as a Jewish woman. He usually would have tied that title to the name if they were Jewish. Lydia was a God-fearer, 
like Cornelius, the Roman centurion. Lydia worshipped the God of Israel, but was not a convert to Judaism. There were some things left out of the steps that she needed to take to fully, you know, convert over. And I find an interesting thing to note here in the text. And that would be that it is completely possible to be a worshiper of God in a sense without being truly saved and or redeemed. Lydia worshipped God but had no saving knowledge of God's Messiah, Jesus Christ. Without Jesus, we might put it very simply, her worship was misguided. Being a worshiper of God apart from Jesus Christ is to no advantage for any individual. Jesus said God must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. To worship God from the heart or emotions, in order to do so rightly, one must know, understand, and believe the truth. And the truth is that Jesus Christ is God's only begotten Son and sent Messiah. Amen. Without this heart knowledge and without this head knowledge, okay, of Jesus, one cannot worship God from the fullness of their being, from the fullness and true heart of who they are. One cannot worship God the way he requires and even commands. Lydia was doing what she thought would get her saved, even in her worship. She obeyed aspects of Judaism. She relied on her own efforts and works as prescribed by that religion. She attempted to worship the God of Israel. And even though she may have been a worshiper in some sense, she was still lost in her sin. She was still under the wrath and judgment of God. Before moving forward into the next part, we might ask the question, how does one come to a saving knowledge of the truth? We may just couch the second part of 14 with that question. How does one come to a saving knowledge of the truth? The answer is in 14b. Look at your Bible. Don't take my word for it. This is life or death. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. We call this the doctrine of illumination or regeneration. God supernaturally opened Lydia's heart, the fullness of her being, to pay attention to, to understand, and to receive the gospel. Without God's intervening, Lydia would have heard nothing more than a lecture by a good speaking guy on Jesus Christ. That's all she would have heard, as countless others hear and experience every Sunday in church. She would not have had the ability to understand Paul's words in a saving way. If Lydia had the ability to understand and then on her own and then incline her will towards God to embrace the gift of salvation and be saved, verse 14b would be absent or say something else. I'm not making this stuff up. It's right there. If she had the ability to embrace and pursue and grab a hold of, you would not see 14b, period. And you would not see a whole lot of other verses like John 3, 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given from heaven. John 1, 12 to 13. But to all who did receive him, that's Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God, that's what your Bible says. Romans 9, 16. So then, speaking of salvation, it depends not on 
human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. 1 Corinthians 1.30. And because of him, speaking of God, you are in Christ Jesus because of him. And there are a ton more. I'll wrap that little part up with Philippians 2.13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There are many, many, many other passages and verses that make it crystal clear that God is the one who opens our hearts and that without his divine intervention, people will remain closed and blind. If you are a believer, God worked the same miracle in you. Your process may have been different from Lydia's, but he still opened your heart. My lovely wife and I have been taking theology courses together, and I would suggest any married couple or courting couple in here would do that because it is fantastic. And you find out when you take these courses together that your spouse knows a lot more about the Word of God than you, the preacher, and everyone else. And so we've been taking these great courses together uh, through Ligonier Ministries, which is a fantastic place of ministry and resource. We've been studying church history, and it really has been great. Our conversations have been fantastic. I've enjoyed every moment of it. We recently listened to a lecture on Augustine. Augustine described his conversion as a three-step process. Right? He didn't just get saved and that was it and just started running with it. He says that he experienced intellectual conversion while under the preaching of Ambrose, who was one of the greatest preachers of his time. That's when his mind was changed. He says he experienced moral conversion when he heard a voice, like an imaginary voice, guiding him to pick up the word and read it. He picked up the Bible and landed right on Romans 13, 13, which talks about morality. And he said, when I picked that up and read Romans 13, 13, I was converted without a shadow of a doubt in a moral sense. And then he talks about how he experienced sacramental, not Sacramento the town, sacramental conversion at his baptism. When he was baptized, he, feel like, he felt like he was made to feel like through the Spirit of God that that was the moment that it all came together and his conversion was complete. And that if you read through history and read his writings and stuff, from that moment on, man, he became such a force for the kingdom. Augustine attributes the whole process, each step, to the supernatural, grace-infused work of God in Christ Jesus. Augustine became the great defender of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone during the 4th and 5th centuries. Now men have always attacked the grace of God in salvation, but God always prevails because his word endures forever. Knowing that salvation is entirely the work of God is one of the most liberating truths in the known universe. But it is only liberating to those who have a proper understanding of their own condition. If you see yourself as a free or good or capable or deserving person, you will never see and savor the liberating grace of God. Never Never. But if you see yourself as a slave to sin, I can't do what's right. If you see yourself as helpless, if you see yourself as hopeless, if you see yourself as lost apart from God, you will value the liberating grace of God to the most extreme only if you see yourself rightly. This was the case with Lydia. After God graciously and effectually opened her heart to the gospel, she responded with obedience to the Lord and hospitality to his servants. We might say that she began to, to, to bear good Christian fruit 
immediately as she experienced the liberating power of God's grace in Christ Jesus. Now look at 15. Ain't the word of God cool? There's nothing like it. Man, so giddy. School kid up here. After, speaking of Lydia, after she was baptized, and look, and her household as well, what? She urged us, the apostle and his team, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And then it says, and she prevailed upon us. This is great. After being saved, she was baptized. Obviously in water, under the water. This follows the pattern and theme in Acts where new believers were immediately baptized after their conversion. We've seen that over and over. The 3,000 got saved right up front when the church began baptized over and over and over. When people get saved, they get baptized. Lydia was willing to physically display her faith in Jesus Christ to those who were present to show that she had been changed on the inside through this outward showing through baptism. She was willing to do this before all who were present. The ladies that were with her and her little Bible study, her prayer group, and her household. In fact, her household was baptized too. This means that God poured out his mercy and saving grace, illuminated them. Not only he poured these things out, not only on Lydia, but on her family too. How merciful is our God. How marvelous. Moved by the newly received love of God, Lydia began to exhibit love for the church. Filled with a sense of gratitude, generosity, and hospitality, she urged Paul and his team to come stay at her house. And she actually pleaded with them to do so. Lydia told them that if they found her to be faithful to the Lord, they should stay at her place. What did she mean by this? This was simply her way of saying, if you now believe I am in Christ, there is no reason why you shouldn't come to my house and stay. Or if you now believe I am a Christian, there is no reason why you shouldn't come to my house and stay. As a seller of purple goods, Lydia had some serious selling skills. She was trying to corner the deal. She was trying to close the deal with Paul and his team. Man, she had a great sales pitch. There ain't no reason why you shouldn't come stay at my house. I'm just like you. And her offer was an extended offer. Lydia wasn't interested in hosting a slumber party. Come over. We'll just, just stay the night and I'll fix you food and you hang out and you guys can take off in the morning. Her offer was an extended offer. She desired to make her house a base for Paul and his team as they spread the gospel in Philippi and to even use it for church planting. The deal was too sweet to pass up. Luke wrote, she prevailed upon us. Now, if we slip down to verse 40, you can do that in your Bible there. We read that Paul returned to Lydia's house to visit and, and, to visit and encourage her and the brothers. What does this tell us? It tells us that her house became the gathering place for the first believers in Philippi. Sounds like a church plant to me. Isn't that amazing? I think it's spectacular. I think it's, it's awesome. How God illuminated someone, gave them the ability to understand the gospel. They responded with, with surrender. And then filled with joy. You know, they get saved. They, man, what, what's my next step? Well, you need to be baptized. Bam, they get baptized. Turn right around and offering up what they have. Offering up their place. 
That really is what salvation will look like. God intervenes and does a, a miraculous, incredible work. We respond in faith, joy, and love to him. And then we begin to obey and we exhibit hospitality in these things. It's just amazing. You've seen it all right there in your Bible. It's spectacular. Now I have some closing thoughts. It's not a very long text. I have some closing things I asked myself, and I've been trying to ask myself these things every sermon. What might we take from this sermon? What might we take from this text? What might we apply to our lives? Well, we have most certainly covered several important themes. The first would be this. The Holy Spirit is the trigger person. That's what we began with. Question to you is, do you begin each day and every venture by first seeking the Holy Spirit? Are you asking him for his guidance and for confirmation? Is he the leader of your life and of your ministry? And I really hope you have one. Is he? Do you begin with him? And if you have, has he confirmed what you're doing? Paul had been confirmed through the Holy Spirit, through a vision and other means. The church confirmed him. The church confirmed me as I stepped into the role of pastor here. We confirmed elders. God was doing those confirmations through, through the church, through you. Do you begin each day and every venture by first seeking the Holy Spirit? Made me wonder about Paul's failed attempts to evangelize Bithynia in Asia. We didn't see a stop anywhere in there, and we didn't see the Holy Spirit. Well, Paul's a bad, terrible guy now. No. I don't know if it's true of him, but how often do we just jump right into things and keep moving and keep moving and keep doing and keep accomplishing or whatever and keep pursuing and we don't stop to make sure that we're in the will of God and to allow the Holy Spirit to confirm us. I believe so many problems and things would be avoided if we just did that, at least on our side of heaven. It's a great thing to ponder. Secondly, worshiper in a sense. Lydia believed that God existed and even attempted to worship him in a sense. But her belief did not include Jesus Christ, who is the true and only path to the Father. A generalized or generic belief in God will not Save you under any circumstances. It is only through Christ that we can be saved. For he alone is what? The way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. Countless Americans today believe in a God. But they do not get to that God through the only way, truth, and life, and that is Christ. Thirdly, illumination. Illumination. God supernaturally opened Lydia's heart, the fullness of her being, to pay attention to, understand, and receive the gospel without illumination, a person cannot comprehend and believe the truth. Question, has God illuminated you? Do you believe and understand the truth of Jesus Christ at this very moment? Are you clinging to Christ for your salvation? Is he your only hope? If so, God has opened your heart. 
And I say rejoice. Rejoice. And I would say if not, ask God to be merciful to you. Plead with him to open your heart to Christ that you might believe on him. I believe any person, any person who sincerely seeks the Father with that request, God will respond with mercy and grace. The key is sincerely. Relinquish yourself, relinquish your own efforts, relinquish your own position, all things before the cross, and cry out to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Open my heart to the truth. In so many ways, if you're saying those things, he's already began to open your heart. You see a need of them. Hospitality. Driven by the love of God and a love for others. Lydia invited Paul and his team into her home. Are you driven by the love of God? Do you have a desire to open up your home and to show hospitality to others as she did? Or is your house just your little secluded place where you just live out your life with your family or your dog or cat? Poor John. Cat. John's like, I don't like my pastor anymore. <laughs> you open up your home? Does that mean that, that well, what, what do you mean by that, Pastor Phil? Because Lydia did it. Does that mean we should all do that? Yes. We have to be like her. That's what being a Christian is about. It's about being hospitable. Not just in opening your house, but in a multitude of ways. Being hospitable towards others. Lastly, using what you have. Lydia not only showed hospitality and opened up her home. She used her home to advance the purposes of Christ in her community. She set it up as a missions base so the gospel could be spread and so that her home could also be used as a place for Christian fellowship, Christian worship, and Christian discipleship. Question, are you using your stuff and or home to advance the purposes of Christ in your community? Aren't you glad I don't make this stuff up? You know what I ask myself so often? At what point, I, I teach this, fine. I read it, fine. At what point am I going to be obeying it? One of the things that frazzles me more than anything is my own ability to, to study and to read and to teach and to disobey. Doesn't that get under your own skin? And I'm not talking about my example. I'm talking about your own example. We could come to this place every Sunday religiously for a couple years and listen to, listen to the book of Acts being expounded on and we'd sit there and we'd keep taking in all this stuff but we stay in the same place in our life. There's nothing more frustrating to me than when I do that. There are endless examples of what true saving faith look like in the scriptures if you've been disobedient I'm not saying you're not saved I can't read your heart but I can read your actions I think it's time that we really and I don't want to beat anyone up in here man there's faithful people in there but I think it's time that we all agree together to hold each other accountable and start living this stuff out and you got your total right to get on me you're supposed to hold me accountable. The elders do too. 
let's take what we've been given, what we have, and let's use what we have for the purposes of Christ in our community. And you might have fear. I wouldn't even know how to open that up. I wouldn't even know how to do that. Let's figure it out. We got some creative people in here. God will guide us. We'll figure out how to do it. As my deep, deep, deep prayer for myself and for all of us, that we would not only know Christ, but that we would obey everything that we're being taught. Matthew 28, teach them to obey all that I commanded. It's right in front of you. Question, when will you, if you haven't been, begin to obey and to put everything up for the kingdom. Leverage all that you have. There is such joy in it. There have been times where I've done it better than other times. And there is such joy in that kind of obedience. I want to implore you and encourage you. You think about these things. Think about these things. And let's together strive together to be a, a, a small band of believers that God could use in such a mighty way in our community, that we would be hospitable and loving and caring and opening up our resources and generous in these things. Why? Because we're simply responding to the good grace of God. We're so overwhelmed by his goodness. We see and savor how marvelous his grace is, knowing that we couldn't save ourselves, we respond with just pure joy and happiness and exuberance and energy and passion, loving our God, loving fellow man. Amen? It ain't easy. Even while I'm preaching this, it's, I'm, my flesh is going, it's time to go to El Roselle, Phil. <laughs> my stomach's like, Burrito. No, you yield to the spirit. I'll get you a burrito later. You need to get to communion. You know, it's a tough thing, isn't it? But man, if we all work together and strive together and love each other, what marvelous things God can do in this community through us, through you. And he is using so many of you. And he has given some of you new vision and passion for ministry. And I'm just so excited to see what he's doing. And I'm anticipating what he's going to do throughout this year. Let's yield to him. Let's give him a round of applause. All right. Father, as we, uh, I've just heard from you. And, uh. I'm so thankful that, that in that truth that your mercies are made new every day for us, you are showing us mercy by calling us out of complacency into obedience. And that you are affirming those who, who are faithful in, in, in the areas that they need to be faithful in. I'm so thankful for you who are our gracious God. I, I pray that we would see and savor your grace in such a way that it would just drive us to serve you, to sacrifice, to love others, to give what we have, to open up our home, whatever it is, Lord, that you would instruct us that we would make sure not to just run out of this place and try to do a bunch of things, but we would make sure that the Holy Spirit is the trigger person for whatever it is we're about to do. We don't want to forget that. We need to seek you, God, for a plan. We need to seek you for direction. We need you to confirm these things. Give us zeal for you and for your cause. And Lord, you, you, you prescribed one more mean, uh, means of grace here, one more of your means of grace to us here, and that's communion. That is a physical expression of your grace. But you sent your son and you crucified him for me. I should have been on that cross. I should have died his death. I should go to hell. And yet you were merciful. You sent your son to die the sinner's death, to pay for the sinner's sin be buried, to settle accounts, to rise again in victory.
Oh, Jesus. We take these elements, may we be reminded that it is all you. You are the one who accomplished salvation for us, that we would be simply responding to the finished work, not invoking something on our own. May we remember what those the bread and, and juice represent, your broken body and your shed blood, our freedom, the most explicit showing and revelation of your grace, Christ on the cross. Thank you for your grace, Father. I pray that we would all cherish you and cherish your grace. May it move us to ministry into all things that are holy and pleasing to you. Thank you for the elements, Lord, and what they represent. We, we are anticipating a day where we will dine at your supper table. A banquet unimaginable to the human mind. What makes that banquet so amazing? It isn't the fact that the best food in the universe will be there. It'll be that we are in your presence because you are the one that makes the banquet worth anything. You are the one that makes heaven worth going to, that we would be in your presence for eternity. We thank you in the name of Jesus.